Namaste to all of you. I'm glad to meet you online tonight. We are continuing with the Gospel of Luke. We are getting close to the end of it. So it's clear that this season we will manage to finish this huge job of going through the words and actions of Jesus. We are in chapter number 21, somewhere in the middle of it. And we are at a very strange place. It's very short before uh, Judas' betrayal and uh, Jesus' Last Supper and ordeal. And uh, therefore, uh, exactly at this maximum point, uh, Jesus is making some prophecies and he's giving some of the grand and final teachings which he's giving. And one of them was that he was predicting that um, there will be a time of terrible ordeal. He doesn't say it clearly, but he basically says it's because of people's lack of faith, because of people's actions. And um, he makes a prediction. When you read this prediction carefully, you can take the text of the Bible and read it three times over, go through this chapter 21 three times over, you are going to see that uh, the prediction of Jesus is very, very smart in a very, very clairvoyant way, in a very, very high level, because uh, Jesus is talking with like double entendre or multiple understandings. He makes a prediction which, first of all, came true just 35 years after he passed away. In around the year 70, the Romans just attacked. He got, they got displeased totally with the Jewish compliance to their rulership or non-compliance of their rulership. And they simply destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem to the point where they destroyed the Temple of Solomon, which was the center of the Jewish faith and uh, national feeling, their core. And um, basically, um, until, until today... The traditional Jews are suffering from the memory of the fact that their temple is no longer available and it was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 and all that. But what Jesus is saying is actually applying to other things as well because Jesus is talking about events which repeat themselves like cyclically, as above, so below. Something which happened in the year 70 may happen with tanks and airplanes and nuclear missiles and whatever in the year 2070. That means uh, there is a similarity which is very relevant from the standpoint of Ajna Chakra, seeing the way history goes, seeing the way things are happening, It's very relevant and at the same time it is absolutely incredible how Jesus manages to talk by saying two, three things at the same time. Similar events 
had happened around the year 1000 when the crusaders came to Jerusalem and the Islamic nations and the Islamic rulership was coming very strong and there were these dial- this, uh, wars about who ruled over Jerusalem and now it was the crusaders and the Christian kings and now it was the Ottoman uh, kings and the uh, Islamic rulers and things were... Uh, also very cataclysmic. Around the year 1000, so many things happened. The Christian church had its first major schism and it split in two. And that was like the end of the world for many Christians who believed in the oneness of the Christian church and all that. The Crusaders sacked uh, Istanbul, they sacked Constantinopolis just not long time later. There were ceaseless wars in that area with um, um, Jerusalem being as at sometimes Christian, at sometimes Muslim, at sometimes in a limbo somewhere between the two. And therefore, what I'm trying to say here is that at least three times in history... Jerusalem has been in a situation similar to the one described by Jesus. In the year 70, in the years after the year 1000, and presumably in contemporary times or in future times. Because about it, Jesus describes some terrible events which can happen. And he says... At that time, when this will happen, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when did that happen? Because it didn't happen in the year 70. The year 70 was considered to be a loss, not from a Christian standpoint. Most of the Christian uh, uh, struggle was happening in Rome and in the Roman Empire, not in Jerusalem for the time being. It's true, around the year 1000 with the Crusades and all the things which are happening, the events had a Christian tint to them, because then many Jews had already run away from Israel and Palestine, and they were in other parts of the world. And therefore, it was not a Jewish event, It was a Christian event. Then also he says, when will they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory? That didn't happen in the year 70. That didn't happen in the year 1000 or 1100 or 1200. And therefore that is something which is traditionally connected with the second coming of Christ, with the return of Christ. And that has not happened yet as far as we know. And therefore, that is something about the future. So, be aware, because it's exactly like that miracle which is spoken about as Shiva in the Puranas, that there was a demon that could not be defeated unless if Shiva would put an arrow through three worlds, through the physical, astral and causal world at the same time, Uh, destroy that demon in all its three locations. And nobody could do that except Shiva, who because he has the sovereignty of the third eye, 
and can govern everything, Shiva somehow managed to find the right moment, the auspicious moment, and he put an arrow through the three cities simultaneously. Exactly in the same way, Jesus with his Ajna Chakra, he is talking about three different events, but he uses ambiguous words which work for all three of them. It's like trying to find the common denominator of events which happened 35 years later, of events which happened a thousand years later, and of events which have not happened yet, therefore which will happen more than 2,000 years later. This is showing an incredible greatness of spirit, because Jesus is managing to talk authoritatively about these things without giving concrete details. Exactly like some people are irritated by um, the prophecies of Nostradamus, that after they happen, you can recognize that he wrote about them. But before they happen, you didn't know this refers to something which already happened or is something yet to come. The language is a twilight language, is double entendre, is strange language, and you can't put the finger on it and say it's, this is what's going to happen right very soon. Remember that even in the time of Nostradamus, when the king of France, the ruling king of France, was killed in a jousting tournament, which was a stupid thing to do, but he was killed by having his eye gouged out of his head with a lance, with a spear, and Nostradamus describes it. When you read it now and you know what happened, it's quite clear that he talks about that. But before, nobody understood. Nobody understood what he was talking about. So the king himself never thought about taking precautions because Nostradamus would talk about him. This is... Uh, the typical, a typical thing of the people endowed with clairvoyance, that they can speak in such a way that they say, but they don't say. For example, Jesus never gives a useful clue about when exactly will there be a very concrete sign which tells exactly when his second coming is going to be. We would be so interested to have the sign to know now in three years Jesus is coming. But it's not going to happen. And Jesus has announced it in other ways. He said the time of that event, even he, Jesus, doesn't know it. It's like a spontaneous decision of God. He said only the Father in heaven knows when that will happen. It's like it's kept secret from everything and every, only the one reacts in a way and says, now, now, enough is enough, now is the time. It's like purely spirit, it's purely subjective. And thus, what I'm trying to say, it's very interesting to see these prophecies, because sometimes he says... I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. But that is referring only to the events which happened 30 years later, 35 years after his death. Even that is more than a generation, because people lived short lives in those days, and the generation is usually 16 years, 20 years, until the children become adult, 
and they start having their own sexual life and they produce the next generation. And that's why what I'm trying to say is obvious. It is obvious that some of the things refer to the immediate events. And if Jesus would have said, I'm telling you something about which will happen in a thousand years, everybody would have said, come on, man, in a thousand years, I'm going to be dust, ashes and dust. So it's like, what do I care? I'll be dead. You know, we don't know if we have this uh, belief in reincarnation or not. And therefore, it's not relevant for me as my ego and as an individual. But the funny thing is that Jesus speaks not with a double entendre. Jesus is speaking with a triple entendre because he refers to events which happen in a more or less similar way and for which the date is not mentioned. But some events are nevertheless very similar. So, he, I'm resuming, because he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now people have this paranoia that we have global warming and that is generating uh, more troubles. The truth is that nations raised, raised against nation all the time in the last 2,000 years. Kingdom stood against kingdom all the time in the last 2,000 years. Human beings are behaving like shit all the time in the last not only 2,000 years, but a lot. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilence. There have been great earthquakes all the time. There have been great earthquakes which destroyed so many monuments, continents, mountains and so on, on in various places. No? And therefore there is nothing new. Famine, there has been famine in many places. Even in the 20th century, we had huge amounts of people dying because of famine even in the 20th century, probably even in the 21st, and I'm not updated with them. Uh, pestilences, and we, we have a pestilence running real now, if you believe to the medical world, that we have a pandemic or something. I don't think it's such a great pestilence compared to other things which happen in the history of mankind, but it is at least famed like that. So... Uh, Jesus, I don't think he's telling anything new. He says, when you hear about earthquakes and pestilences, and yeah, but there have been earthquakes in Indonesia and in Africa and in Japan and in Chile. They have an earthquake almost every day. And it's like, you know, it's like, what are you talking about? No, these are not giving us a clue. And actually, Jesus does not want to give a clue. He wants to sound like he knows what he is talking about, but he doesn't want to give a time landmark, a precise time landmark, simply because humanity has to go in its own specific path. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This happened indeed after the crucifixion of Jesus, that there was persecution of Christians. 
and that persecution of Christians was in Jerusalem as well and in the Jewish communities around, then it continued and it continued in the Roman Empire, both in the Western Roman Empire and in the Eastern Roman Empire. And this persecution lasted for hundreds of years, not just for those 35 years that we're talking about. But actually, in Jerusalem, people believing in Jesus, they had persecutions even a thousand years later when the Muslims came and took over Jerusalem. Some of the rulers have not been very enlightened and they treated Jews, Christians and different Gentiles which still existed in those areas. They treated them badly and sometimes they executed them, they mass murdered them. So again, this statement that there's going to be some anti-Christian persecution before that time is also not giving us a clear landmark about when will this be? When will this happen? No, it's not. It's a general thing, but it is not... I'm sorry? Oh, I have a little bug here. It's okay. So, um, that's also not uh, very clear. So, he just simply says... There will be a second coming because later he describes himself coming back. But he says this will not prevent you from being subjected to bitter spiritual tests. In a certain way, we can say that the Jesus mentality is a mentality of self-sacrifice. Jesus says clearly, those who wish to follow me, they should take their cross and walk or different other sentences are put there. Um, There is a statistic made by the United Nations about persecutions in the 20th century and even in the first years of the 21st century. And the conclusion is surprising and yet not very surprising the religious denomination which is most murdered and most persecuted in these last 100 years are Christians. Either you talk about Syria or you talk about God knows what other country, the people who are really persecuted are Christians. You are going to say, yeah, but at the time when the Catholic Church was big and mighty, they persecuted maybe Muslims in Spain or maybe Jews in different places of Europe. Yes, that is true. But all in all, in numbers, what's happening in the last 100 years has been statistically measured by the United Nations and it came out that the most persecuted community is the Christian community. Why? Simply because Christians have as a motto, have as a mantra, that you should take upon yourself the trouble of the world, and you should sacrifice yourself, and you should not strike back, and you should not take revenge, and you should forgive, and you should love your enemies, and so on. I'm not saying that I am disagreeing with these Christian teachings. But I'm saying that they make things very difficult and very complicated. 
and they lead to the fact that if you behave like a sacrificial lamb, then the world is going to treat you like a sacrificial lamb. Most governments in the West, although they were 30 years ago proclaiming that those countries were still Christian, they did not behave Christian at all. Not at all. Not in any way. And thus, uh, here Jesus is telling a thing which is a sad fact. He said before whatever event he's predicting, a thousand years gap between them, threefold events which are similar, he says they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to the synagogues. It's like the synagogue is a place of punishment. That's not very politically correct. Because it basically says the synagogue is the enemy of Jesus. Yeah? This is... You know, today, they have all sorts of religious festivals and congresses where they try to pretend that the different religions of the world are finally living in peace with each other. And probably the only ones who are mocking this are the fundamentalistic Muslims who are saying bullshit, we don't, you know, it's all a hypocrisy and a lie and so on. Because it's not really possible for fundamentalistic Christianity and fundamentalistic uh, Judaism to coexist as long as it has not been decided clearly if Jesus was the Messiah or if Jesus was a false Messiah. As much as you try to bullshit each other, this question must have only one clear answer. No? And people are politely going around this question like it doesn't matter, but it matters most of all. It's the fundamental question. So that's why, unfortunately, Jesus here presents the synagogues as the opposition. He is, he knows that his teaching is not going to be liked by the people in the synagogues. So he say they will deliver you to synagogues. What? To be punished, to be murdered, to be accused. And you will be brought before kings and governors because the kings and governors had the administrative power to deliver the major punishments. And all on account of my name. So basically ever since that time, maybe with this gloomy perspective in front of him that he was going to get crucified in a couple of days already and it was hanging above him like a sword of doom, then because of this terrible, difficult week, Jesus himself is... Uh, becoming a prophet of doom. He's becoming gloomy. And he says, you are going to be persecuted because of my name. Yes, this did happen. And it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a certain way. This will result in your being witnesses to them. Which simply says, well, if you have balls when you are accused and when you are on account of my name, 
then you should stand like witnesses before them and say you are not true. Jesus was God. Jesus was the Messiah. You are blind. You didn't see that like he would expect that people would have a spine. History has shown that after a number of people died with martyrdom like Jesus and 11 of his apostles, actually there were a number of people we don't know how many people have been killed in the name of the Christian religion, in, especially in the Roman Empire, but not only. And some of these people stood. They stood against death. They stood against persecution. And they had the incredible courage to witness for Jesus, even at the cost of their torture and death. So... Uh, this is another prophecy which came to happen. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourself. So, you know, he says, decide if you are with me or you are not with me. But otherwise, don't try to make strategies of defense because this is a cause which belongs to God. And God wants to be personally involved in this cause. He makes it like whatever you plan is not going to work then. And other things will be of the utmost importance. He says, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I told you a week ago, or anyhow, one satsang or two satsangs ago, that nobody could beat Jesus in argumentation. Because Jesus was connected to the Logos. Because Jesus was the Logos. And, you know, the Word became flesh or whatever they say in the Bible. Uh, and uh, the Word was with God. And God was the Word. And Jesus is that Word. It is impossible to argue with one like Jesus, like his presence of spirit, the awakening of his Atman, his superconsciousness, his presence of spirit, his mindfulness, and his cosmic mind is so big that he can articulate the truth. Like whenever you come up with some fallacious argument, Jesus will crush you when it comes to argument, to words. You cannot compete with Jesus. Jesus had such strong words that he told to people, stand up, take your bed and go home. You are no longer paralyzed. And people stood up and walked. His word was vaksidi. He was connected to everything. He was 100% connected to God in the aspect of Logos. And therefore, he had it with him all the time. He had the words with him all the time. Nobody could uh, catch Jesus with some conundrum or, you know. People have asked me questions that I cannot answer. People ask me questions which seem to be a logical, um, you know, like mismatch. Like, you know, it's like this, is this right or what? You know, but they never caught Jesus. 
Jesus was never caught in offside. He was never caught unprepared because he was connected permanently at the highest intensity. And even the diabolic confusion, even the confusion brought by the dark side of the force or whatever you want to call it, could not have any effect in the presence of Jesus. Jesus was shining in the darkness of everybody's mind. And therefore, uh, that's why they hated him so much, because they could not argue with him. No? There are many atheistic people and demonized people who argue with religious people, and sometimes the religious people have to shrug their shoulders and they have to say, my dear, you know what you are talking about. I cannot argue with you. You seem to be right sometimes, you know, but you are not right in my opinion. And therefore, see you in a hundred years, and then we will know if you were right or not. You know, like there are sometimes many spiritual people that they say, look, you cannot defeat me, you cannot take my faith from me, but I cannot take your lack of faith from you as well. No? And therefore, we leave it, it's a, it's a draw, it's an equal match. But with Jesus, it was never an equal match. Because Jesus was almighty in this way. So Jesus now says, I have so much of this power of the word that I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. If your consecration is to Jesus, if you are persecuted in the name of Jesus, Jesus promises to give you the words, this power of the speech, that you will be like the child who said, the emperor is naked. That's the power of the truth. A child was smarter than a whole kingdom of people who lived in darkness and in illusion. The child looked and said, what? The emperor is naked. That was God. That was the truth of God. So he simply said, none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Then he goes even more bitter. He says, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. It happened in the years after Jesus' crucifixion. It happened all along the next 2,000 years of Christian history, which shows the kind of planet that we live on, which shows this baboon Kali Yuga that we live in. We show how people really are, what is the true face of humanity. And it shows also that there is something redemptive. There is a crucifixion. There is a sacrifice. There is taking other people's darkness upon yourself at the cost of your pain, at the cost of your blood at the cost of your death. Jesus has always been very peculiar about this issue with the family. He has never been of the opinion that uh, the family is necessarily favoring you in any way. I have seen that in the Middle East, 
there is some attachment to the family. In many Sufi lineages, they say this guy is the great, great, great grandson of Rumi. And, and you know, anybody in the lineage of Jesus would say, and so what? It is very possible that a descendant of Rumi is a total idiot and a very dark person, even diabolic and so on. Why should it matter that somebody is sharing some blood from King David or from Adam and Eve or from Confucius or Lao Tzu or God knows from whom? The Indians also have a tendency to smear things according to the family. The Chinese, especially not so much the Japanese perhaps, but the Chinese, they had a tendency to ascribe everything to the family, Kung Fu and Tai Chi and this kind of things, Qigong. They were passed on as family heritage and that was stupid because it didn't always work so. Even Guru Marpa was trying to pass his Tibetan yoga, his newly discovered Tibetan yoga to his son, and it didn't work. So, in the end, the yoga went to Milarepa, not to the natural son of Marpa. And therefore, in many lineages, there is this revolt that people try to insist too much on this flesh and blood thing, like it means something, and it means very little. Jesus himself was not very popular with his family, and during his life, his reaction to the members of his own family, the blood members of his family, was not very friendly. Try to remember, read again some of those things. I hope I didn't lose microphone uh, because I had a funny sound. I knocked over this thing. Okay, and back to our story. And therefore, Jesus also, when he wants to take it to the extreme... He says, even your family will be so split by this ideological rift that your family will forget that you are of the same blood with them and they will betray you and they will beat you, they will persecute you and sometimes they will cause, if not directly, then at least indirectly, that you are put to death to death through your own family. This is to be meditated upon. I'm not seeing that, I'm not saying that all the time it will happen. So I have uh, made, I have seen families who practiced yoga together, three generations of the same family being dedicated to yoga and others, but Remember this because it comes from Jesus. Jesus is not joking. He says, it can come that even your family is split. And then he keeps on his bitter line. No, like him, he raises the stakes, you know, like you want to follow me? This is what's happening if you follow me. He goes and says, all men will hate you because of me. We had people running away from Agama three years ago because they said it might diminish their reputation to be associated to Agama. No, although Agama was innocent as far as we know 
and as far as we say it very clearly. But there were people who cared about... So what if I would tell you, if you come to Agama, all men, all men will hate you because of your attachment to Agama. How many people will stay in Agama? People ran away from Agama just because there was a dub, there were dubious rumors which could not be proved and they have never been proved and they can never be proved because they were not true. Yeah? There has not been a single legal case. There has not been, as we have been inquired by four different branches of the government and police. There has been not one single indictment, not one single court case, not one single fine, not one single, nothing. Agama was declared 100% innocent by the authorities. No? And yet, some people said, yeah, but the people don't believe in the authorities. They are going to say that still it is. No, then, of course, I can say that you have killed John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Although, although the police says you are innocent, it's still I have my conspiracy theory that you are the one who killed Elvis Presley or something like this. And or kidnapped God knows who, Aldo Moro or whoever was kidnapped in the old days. And that's why I'm saying this theoretically like this, you can state everything. But what would you say? Because Jesus is rising the stakes way beyond what Agama has to endure. It says, all men will hate you because of me. Like, are you ready to take that? No? Some people say, okay, so I keep my allegiance to Jesus as secret as I can. Sure, that is a solution generally. But believe me, God is so almighty and so insightful and so smart that the cosmic consciousness can create black and white situations, can create situations which are without any exit. And when you find yourself in such a situation then there is no way to get out. There, you have to pass that test. There, there is no more a way of hiding your allegiance or pretending you are like the other people. Of course, you pray that such a test does not come too soon to you because most people are not prepared to take such a test. But Jesus is saying, all men will hate you because of me. But, he says, not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. That's both to be taken literally, but on the other hand, we know that thousands of people have been martyrized in the name of Jesus, and all they had to say is, I'm not Christian, I worship Jupiter, look, I'll show you, and I'll like recant recant, simply go away from their beliefs and lie about it. But they have not done it. So, uh, and then they have been killed. So when Jesus says, by standing firm, you will gain life, he means by standing firm, you will gain the eternal life. You cannot take it that Jesus promises that somehow you will be miraculously saved physically. Because we know from history that that 
did not happen. That has not happened. And therefore, do not take Jesus that he is making false prophecies. He speaks metaphorically. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you would know that its desolation is near. That happened, first of all, around the year 70 or 60-something, whatever, 68, whatever, when the Romans sacked it and destroyed the temple and pretty much raised most of the city to the ground. But it has happened in the crusade times, several times, with Salahuddin and so many others, and apparently it might happen in the future once more. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. Again, we don't know how to interpret this. Earlier, he was condemning it with the story of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that at that time we're talking about a destruction which was mysterious and which almost sounded like nuclear weapons or other sort of military weaponry, which is pretty much unimaginable. So what I'm trying to tell you here is he simply gives a sort of a general advice, a general advice. It's very difficult to put the finger on all this thing, you know, He simply gives this general advice, when this is happening, leave the city, go to the mountains, stay away, because it's a time when a lot of negative karma will be discharged. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. We know that these categories are afflicted when there is chemical pollution, biological warfare, nuclear pollution or war, especially those are the categories which are weakened. So, you know, Jesus is telling something very strange. He says it will be really bad if you are caught to be pregnant or lactating, nursing babies at that time. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against these people. So again, that has happened two times in history. And it is possible that there will be a third time. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's up to you to interpret it. The Gentiles simply means the non-Jews. The Romans were considered Gentiles. The Egyptians were Gentiles. The Greeks were Gentiles. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, many, many others. uh, The Phoenicians and others and others. The um, Samaritans and so many others. The Canaanites and others. They were all of them considered to be Gentiles at that time. But of course today it applies in a metaphoric way on the world because the Gentiles 
are supposed to be the non-Christians or something in that way. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. Again, did we see? We have seen eclipses, blue moons, double, triple, different things. So many events, but uh, such events existed mathematically and astronomically a thousand years ago. Such events existed 2,000 years ago. Like we cannot say that now we are seeing a sign in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, which has not been seen at all in the last 2,000 years. There is not such a sign. And therefore, uh, if there will be something special related to the sun, the moon, the stars then maybe we can say that this is a landmark. But otherwise, this is a very general statement, you know, because for illiterate peasants, it's very easy to say there will be signs in the sun and the moon, and then you'll say the moon looked like it had blood upon it last night or something, you know. This is superstitious peasants from the countryside who can see signs of the sun and the moon and the stars all the time, but it's not necessarily what Jesus was talking about. He is talking in such an amazingly veiled way that he is talking without telling anything which is engineeringly accurate, while everything which he tells is accurate. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Even now the humanity with this pandemic thing is in anguish and perplexity. What has that got to do with the sea? How will it be related? We don't know. So again, take all these like meditation mantras. When will there be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars? When the nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea? Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's a very huge statement to say that the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Shaken in which way? No, he doesn't say it. No? And uh, again, you can say that clairvoyant people may have had a sort of partial clairvoyance, which prevents them from seeing all the aspects of the problem. Like I can see this, but unfortunately I cannot tell you exactly the year or what or this or that. But in the case of Jesus, Jesus professes to be omniscient, all-knowing. So if Jesus is all-knowing, there is not one millimeter which is hidden to him. And basically if he doesn't say it clearly... It's not because he cannot, it's because he does not wish, he is not allowed. There is a karmic revelation there, which is simply not allowed. Now, when will you see that men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, like, oh my God, it's coming, for the heavenly bodies even will be shaken. Haven't seen that. We haven't seen that yet. That is what shows us clearly that there will be a third stage of this prophecy, maybe more than a third, but there definitely would be at least a third stage of this prophecy where some things will actually happen like that. At that time, 
they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When? This did not happen. Even if religious people may have had some hallucinations or or visions, we are talking here about global phenomena with the ocean, with the earth, with the heavenly bodies, with cataclysms and so on, and people will see the Son of Man. It's not just one who says, I can see the Son of Man coming. The other people say, man, take your Prozac. No, take your Xanax. You are just delirious. You are seeing what is not to be seen. No, that's not it's going. It's going to be already an obvious thing. You know, so that's why we haven't had that yet. Okay. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Yeah? When you see these signs, and this applies to the third time, not to the first one in the year 70 or around, not to the second one around the year 1000 and the crusading times, this applies to the third one which is yet to come, he says then stand up and he says lift your heads, which is a subjective thing, which means look to heaven, look up to heaven, pray to God, put your hope in God and in heaven, unlike the materialistic people who are staying standing like cows with their eyes down like this, and all they see is the earth. All they see is their physical body. All they see is their hunger and tiredness and bed and bungalow and house and all the mulatcharistic things of life. And then for them, it's like God doesn't even exist because it's out of their view. Rise. Remember who you are and what you can be, at least to a certain extent. He told them this parable. So he relates it to the prediction. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. He refers to the seasons as they are seen in Israel because that's where he is preaching So he is talking about things which are familiar to the farmers and to the simple people from there. There is the sprouting in March, April, which prepares the coming of the summer. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Well, the kingdom of God full on did not come in the year 60 or 70. Although maybe it came for Peter and Paul and a few blessed martyrs. The kingdom of heaven did not come in the year 1000 or 1000 something with the crusaders and all the confusion and all the egos and all the splitting. Even Christianity became split and it could not stand together. And therefore it obviously refers to the third or one of the future instances of that. I tell you the truth. 
This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So now he refers to immediate events. But we see that those immediate events were not like this. And then a thousand years later we had similar events. And it appears that another thousand years later, which means now in the contemporary times, we might have some more. Thus, so he says, it will happen to some of you, you will see some of these challenges even now. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Like, what a strong statement from Jesus. No? Jesus simply says, you, it's confusing, I didn't give you exact dates, I didn't, some of these things are happening at different times. After it happened in the war year 68 or 70, many people have said, see, Jesus prophesied this. Yeah, he told and so on. Then, then it's over. No, But then it was not over. The whole thing came back a thousand years later and maybe some other times which I'm not aware of. Then the whole team thing may come again back one more time. So please be aware You know, it's like it's a trap in this way, you know, and that's why Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, like samsara will be destroyed, maya, but my words will never pass away. Like he says, this prophecy is made with the voice of God. And because it's made with the voice of God, it will stand, it will happen. So here there are events which we have not seen yet. And if they don't happen, it means Jesus was a liar and he didn't tell the truth. And therefore, Jesus is telling you, don't be deluded. I made a confusing prophecy which refers to different events in three time locations or more. And because of this, you will be confused and running in circles and say, I thought it happened, but now it happens again. But I don't know if it's the same thing. But I know, and then people will be confused. And Jesus is telling very clearly. Heaven, like he reinforces it with a very powerful statement. He says, it will be rather heaven and earth that will pass away, but not my words. How can Jesus tell to the blind man, now you can see, and to the other man your sins are forgiven. And then he says it with such authority that my words will never pass away. What I told you is going to happen absolutely. no. And then be made a liar into that. Obviously, Jesus will not be made into a liar. And this thing sooner or later will happen as to cover those details which did not happen in the year 70 and they did not happen. Some things did happen, but not all of them. And they did not happen in the year 1000 and some of them therefore are yet to come. Be careful or your heart will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Today, how many people are willing to listen to this or to do things in this way? No? How smart, how, how much of a visionary Jesus is 
He says, your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And then you stop being vigilant. You stop being spiritual. You stop being prepared for Jesus. And then exactly when you turn your back, just because you wanted to fulfill some chores, exactly then the day is coming, the test is coming, the events are coming, and you are caught with your pants down, you are caught unprepared. That's the motto of the Boy Scouts in the old days, no, which is correct in this way. I'm not necessarily very proud of the culture of the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, but it was a Christian manifestation of people who understood theologically this because they cultivated constantly the mantra, be prepared, be ready. Jesus may come to you tonight. What do you do if you are busy with some other stupidities? No, you have to be prepared all the time as if it could happen today. You have to live in this state of vigilance, of alertness, of preparedness. And that's, of course, requiring a constant spiritual effort. So Jesus knows this and says, the time is not clear. Thousand years will pass. Two thousand years will pass. You will be caught in the snares of Facebook or God knows what other preoccupation you have. And then you will not be prepared. Then you will be unaware. He says your hearts will be weighed down like no hope, no expectation, with dissipation, like distraction being dispersed, drunkenness, which means everything, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Will he be right? For a lot of people, he will be right. He sees it so very clearly that that's how the human nature is. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Aha! So it's not only about Jerusalem being sacked by the Romans. It's not only about... Uh, Jerusalem being under Islamic rule or crusader rule or something. He says it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. At the time when these events were happening in year 70 or in year 1000 and something, the people in China or Japan, they did not have a clue that such events were happening. It didn't affect them at all they never heard a rumor or anything about it. So obviously this prophecy was not applying to those times. Because this prophecy, if you are to believe Jesus, he says it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Sometimes a little bit of preparedness does a lot. I remember that in 1977, I experienced a major earthquake in Romania, which killed a lot of people. And when people were subjected to the earthquake, they sometimes had the most crazy 
reactions. Like I remember somebody whom my family knew, a friend of the family, who was living in a house. If I remember correctly, the house was not even having the, the first floor, the upper floor. It was just a single floor, a ground floor house. In a ground floor house made of bricks or whatever it's made, if, if you would have an earthquake strong enough to make it come down, it is enough for you to hide under a strong table. It's enough for you to hide into a powerful wardrobe. It's enough for you to lie down just near the bed, near the lower edge of the bed, near the side of the bed, and you will 99.9% not be hurt by the debris, by the house falling upon you. Yeah, if you are in a 10-story building, and that 10-story building, that block of flats falls, crumbles, then you cannot get saved if you hide under a table or something like this, because we are talking about weights and pressure, which are huge. But this guy, he was living in a house, so it was not that dangerous that the house will fall upon him. And he had a wife and two kids. They were small. His kids were like 10 years old, more or less. And he simply ran out of the house in the garden like a scared animal. And then he was complaining to my parents. He said, man, I'm so disappointed in myself. I behaved like an animal. I was taken by surprise and like my primitive brain took over and I reacted in such a stupid and selfish and ugly way. I left my wife and my kids to die in the house and I ran out. Of course, the house did not crumble and nobody died. But then they could have happened. And then he said, how would I have felt if the house would have crumbled and I was the only one who saved himself by running out like an egoistic animal? No, he wanted to have a more noble behavior. If he would have thought ten times, once every week, in the previous ten weeks, an earthquake may be coming. When the earthquake will be coming, I'll first grab my wife and my kids and take them out of the house so that they will not be squashed. Which means to be prepared. Like the question is, when Jesus is coming, what will you do? But you are not prepared. You never thought about it. You should, you should think once a week at least. What if Jesus is coming like an earthquake? Unexpectedly. How will I react? Let me rehearse it. Let me prepare for it. How many people have you known that do that? Nobody does that. Thus, he says very clearly, Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. You react like an animal, you do something really stupid, and then you are full of shit, then you won't even dare to show yourself to Jesus, because you will feel guilty, and you will feel dirty, and you will feel whatever, like you've done, you missed this boat, you missed this train, you missed and you did something wrong. That's why Jesus says when you realize how things are going to be, you always have to be prepared. No? Prepared not only for the worst case scenario, but prepared 
for the second coming of Christ. Prepared for the end of days. Prepared for your spiritual confrontation. People act like it's never going to happen. But it is going to happen because I believe that when Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away, I think that is quite an irrefutable and uncontestable statement. The fact that it didn't happen until now, it doesn't tell us that it will not happen tomorrow or in a thousand years again. That's why here you have a very, very powerful and complicated thing delivered to humanity. He makes a prediction which is extremely convoluted and it's still not making people be prepared. People say, if I have to wait for another thousand years, then I may as well get drunk and do stupid things because Jesus will probably not come tomorrow. It didn't come for my grandparents. It didn't come for my great-grandparents. So even if they were prepared, they were prepared for nothing. They will greet Jesus in the afterlife, in their judgment day, but not physically, like be prepared, be prepared. And therefore, if you see a thousand people, not a thousand generations, not be prepared, then you are ready to not be prepared yourself. And uh, that's not what Jesus says you should do. Each day concludes the chapter 21. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. That means like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday he didn't teach because he was arrested already. So each day of that week after Sunday he entered, in the Palm Sunday he entered Jerusalem. Then he was teaching perhaps a little bit Sunday. And then if not, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He was four or five days every day at the main temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. That's very close to the temple. It's directly on the hill behind it, which is today in eastern Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. That part is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So it appears that he was doing most of his teaching, miracles, whatever else he prophecies, whatever he was doing. It seems that he was doing it specially in the morning. Don't forget that at the time when there was no electricity and public lighting and so on, as soon as the sun was going down, things were becoming very difficult and very delicate for people to fulfill. And that's why at the time of darkness, like after 6 p.m., 7 p.m., depending on the season and on the sunrise, people were indoors or in safe locations. So Jesus was not teaching like I do here in the evening at the dark. Jesus was a diurnal person. He was probably waking up very early in the morning and he was teaching in daytime, in the morning especially. So that was 
what happened with chapter number 21 and now we start chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. This is giving us exactly an indication like the events which happen, happen in the weekend which is around the Jewish Passover. Theoretically, this is what the Christians call Easter and in case you have not been aware, there is there a descent of some sort. Uh, the Christian mystics in the first centuries of Christianity, they did not wish to celebrate their Christian resurrection of Christ, uh, Easter. They did not want to uh, celebrate it at the same time with the Jewish Passover, just not to be mixed up with the Jewish religion because Jesus is an ambivalent figure, either he's Messiah or some minor prophet or something from the Jewish standpoint, and they wanted to keep it separate. Also, to tell the truth, uh, even if it's politically incorrect, they did not want to celebrate at the same time with the Jews, simply because they were angry at the Jews that they did not recognize Jesus in a higher percentage and that they eventually they delivered Jesus to the Romans to be crucified. And therefore they were like, we don't want to be with the Jews. The Jews are accursed or something like this. And because of that, they, when you follow the calendar, you will see that the Christian Easter practically never comes together with the uh, Jewish Passover. If it comes, it comes usually at a week's difference. There are some astronomical rules of calculating the Jewish Passover. And then the Christians have said, if it's not possible in any other way, then we put it a week later. It's not exact, but Jesus will honor us with his presence anyway. But we do it as a sign of rejecting this Jewish influence in our religion. We want to, you know, exactly as the Jews in the old days and still today, some of the traditionalistic ones, some of the fundamentalistic ones, they feel that they have to keep away from the other nations because the Jews are pure and the non-Jews, the Gentiles are shit and they would pollute you and you cannot get into the house of a heathen, of a non-Jew. All those crazy rules from... Uh, the Talmud and other literature. Uh, at the same time, uh, the same thing was taken over by the Christians. Don't forget that the apostles, all the 12 apostles, they were Jews. And they had the same way of thinking as the Jews. And they turned that way of thinking to their own Jewish religion. Now they went one step further. The Jews were dismissive to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And now the Christians are dismissive to the Jews. Like now the Jews have become the devils and the Christians are the pure ones which want to stay away from any interaction with the Jews. And that's why when you look today at the calendars, you will see that the Jewish Passover is usually at a weak distance or sometimes in the Orthodox Eastern Church at five weeks difference from 
like it's next month simply and plus one week. And therefore it's kept away from the Jewish Passover as a sort of a grudge, as a sort of a moral revenge, you know, like we celebrate Jesus at a slightly different time because we just don't want to mix up with your shit in any way. That is, uh, Jesus would come happily at any time. No, those are human politics. And uh, that's the way it goes. So, but we are told that this feast of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And it is, it's of course, uh, one of the traditional events from the Jewish history with Moses in Egypt and all that. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of people. The presence of Jesus for three years in Israel, and now for five days, for four days in the temple, was rising the tension, because every day and every minute when Jesus was there, he was all the time reminding to people that their priests were not right, that their priests were hypocrites, that their priests were not living according to the word of God, that their priests were fake, that their priests did not have any power to bring them salvation, that their priests were wolves dressed in sheep skins, that their priests were like the tombs, rotten inside and nicely painted on the outside, and this was eroding the priests' authority. And they were afraid that it was going to explode on the Passover. Because Jesus was alive, present there, like a spiritual dynamo, and pushing, 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 and telling to people all sorts of things which were not uh, polite and not uh, diplomatic at all. And thus, it says that they were afraid of the people. They were afraid a religious riot will appear. They are afraid that people will simply say, we want Jesus to be our chief rabbi. Um, Fuck you all with all your Sanhedrin and council. We want Jesus to be the chief religious authority of our country and let him designate uh, 20 other people to help him to be his council or something. You know, let's start fresh because we have got fed up with all this falsity and they couldn't have that. They couldn't have that. No. If the Romans would have been really more smart, they would have uh, accepted it because from the standpoint of military dominance, Jesus would have been a gold mine for them. Because Jesus would have said, give the Caesar what belongs to the Caesar. You guys have weapon and power. I'm not going to fight with your weapon and power. But in our hearts, we celebrate God, we love God, we do God's will, we do our spiritual practice, and you can fuck yourselves with your money and your tax collection and your military power. We are like non-cooperating. We have social non-cooperation with you. We live in two parallel universes. We do our thing and you can just go kill yourselves if you want or whatever. You know, of course, Jesus was compassionate towards uh, the Romans as well. But I'm saying from a strictly military standpoint, they would have been happy. Because the, those, Rome, those Jewish priests which were then in the high council, the high priest Caiaphas and all the others, 
they were secretly conspiring for independence. They were on the side of the zealots. They were having a lot of uh, material advantages which they wanted to keep. And they were actually... So eventually in another 35 years, they got so bitter and they provoked the Romans so much that the Romans simply squashed them for the time being and destroyed their temple completely, not leaving one stone upon the other. And thus what I'm telling you here is very uh, simple. In a certain way, they were afraid of the people because people might have liked another leadership and that leadership would have made history to be very, very different of what it has been. Of course, Jesus would not have respected the Roman emperor like a deity. No, because he wouldn't. But in that time, Julius Caesar and the first emperors, they did not pretend they were a deity either. So, uh, therefore, they might have been striking a bargain. Look, we do our thing and we are not disturbing your military uh, obsessions, you know. Just do whatever you do. We continue with our lives. And then the text is really strange. It says, then, because as they are searching for means, then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Please understand, Judas was not himself when he did what he did. Even the Bible says it very clearly. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. What will you do if Satan enters you? Can it happen? If it happened to Judas, can it happen? There are many people who in many spiritual issues, again we have our favorite events from three years ago, some people would say, I don't know what happened, but it is as if a demon entered me. Now many people are coming and saying, Swamiji, we can't understand it. We have been swept our feet and it's like our mind has been taken away. We acted badly and we would like to maybe apologize or something. Yes, that has happened all along history. Of course, in the case of Jesus, this was the very big confrontation. The stake was at its maximum because you had an avatar who was accepting to be sacrificed. He allowed it to happen. But for that to happen, you needed the devil to go on full power. And the devil went on full power. And the poor Judas was the one who fell the target. People say, what would have happened if Satan or some other major devilish personality, Lucifer, Beelzebub, whatever, Astaroth, or there are a hundred names of Azazel and so all sorts of other demons, would have entered. No. But here we are said Satan, you know, we are not told directly if it was a dark angel of Satan, if it was one of the hierarchy of the diabolic hierarchies, personally, 
or Satan himself. But we are being told between the lines that theoretically Satan can enter in a human being. Which is very, very scary. Very, very scary. What if Satan enters you and you fuck it up royally like Judas did? And you know that Judas was not forgiven. Judas was forgiven by Jesus as a person. But he said it would have been better for that person if he would have never been born. And Judas went the next morning and hanged himself when Satan was not motivating him. When he had his own conscience and then he discovered what he had actually done. When he was doing this... He was not aware. He was possessed by, for 24 hours, giving himself excuses. That's what people do when they are possessed by demons or by diabolic influences. They give themselves excuses. The correct way is never to find yourself an excuse for doing something terrible. That's why Arjuna... He did not want to do the holy war of Krishna until Krishna put him in samadhi and demonstrated that this was the will of God. And then Arjuna did it, but in a very sad way. He fought the holy war of Krishna, but not his heart was not there really. So uh, please remember, Satan entered Judas. Why didn't Satan enter Peter? Why didn't Satan enter John? Because Judas was already rotten inside. And when you are rotten inside, you are vulnerable. You are a fertile ground. Peter was not a great guy. Then very soon after, he betrayed Jesus. He said, I don't know this man. I don't, don't told me. You know, like he disowned Jesus. So he was not such a super great devotee. He had his weaknesses. He was just a human being. Nobody is asking that Peter should be some superman. He became superhuman. 30 years later, when he himself became crucified in Rome. But at the time when these events happened, he was a cowardly man. Maybe a bit manly, maybe a bit determined, maybe a bit, you know, but still with a lot of fear and a lot of illusion and a lot of weakness. And thus, you would say, what if did Satan flip a coin? How did Satan decide? No. Satan took the one whose soul was already compromised, whose soul was already corrupt. In this little dream team of Jesus, there was one who no longer believed in Jesus, which sounds utterly impossible, because Jesus just a week ago had raised Lazarus from his grave in Bethania, whatever, close to Jerusalem. Just in the few days where he was in the temple, 
of Jerusalem, he performed a couple of major miracles. He gave sight to a blind man and a few other things. You know, like to live with Jesus who does big things like this once every three days. And then to say, nevertheless, I lost my faith in Jesus. Somebody would say, how much of an idiot do you have to be? How much of a moron you have to be? Like, you know, you see Swami Shivananda, that he is getting obese, and he's doing a lot of stupid things, and he is not performing any miracle, he is just a very knowledgeable yogi, you know, you would say, I have not faith in Swami Shivananda. You know what? I, having been a student in yoga for so many years, I would say, that's kind of human nature. I had lost in some teachers of yoga who simply became too much for my expectations and I lost faith with them. But how easy was it to lose faith with Jesus for God's sake? Like what was Jesus doing so wrong and so contradictory that you came to the point of losing faith with Jesus? Like, come on, if you lose faith with Jesus, then you are completely absurd. You are completely ridiculous. It's completely nonsense. No, it's okay to lose your belief in, uh, I don't know whom, in Swami Shivananda or in Sri Aurobindo, because they have human controversial behaviors. But what was controversial in the behavior of Jesus. What was not aligned with the divine? Because we don't know. No? And still Judas, the mental monkey of Judas, manages the incredible performance, the incredible negative performance, to lose faith with Jesus. To have big doubts about Jesus himself. You could have doubts about John the Baptist. He was living naked, dressed in skins in the desert. He was dirty, unwashed. He was just baptizing people, but so what? You know, some people would say it was just a stupid ritual and it meant nothing. Some people said, oh, I felt great, but that's subjective. That's self-suggestion, that's self-hypnosis, you know, that people say, I, you know, it's nothing objective. But when you have people walking on water and coming back from the grave, what kind of doubts can you have at that time, you know? It's how ridiculous does it have to be? Well, as ridiculous as you think it is, it does happen. And Judas was such a person. That's why I say Judas was ripe for the picking. He was the rotten egg in the basket. Therefore, uh, Satan was not allowed to take one of the healthy ones. Because Jesus would have protected them. But in the case of Judas, Jesus did not protect him. He says, oh well, although he is a bad disciple of mine, he will, uh, I will protect him because still he is some sort of disciple of mine. No. Please understand the rules of the game. Please understand. People can get possessed by demons and by demonic entities, depending on what is at stake. 
the stake is that somebody wants you to masturbate and discharge your sexual energy and lose your ojas. How much is at stake? A little bit, a daily dose of sexual energy. How powerful will be the demon who will do that? Not very powerful. How interested will he or she be? And how much will they push on you to do that? Not too much. No, because there is not much at stake at all. And that's why, no, you are possessed by a demonic spirit, even when you are pushed to masturbate and to discharge your sexual energy. But that's not Satan coming and possessing you, because Satan is busy with much, 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 much bigger jobs than that. So you have to keep the proportions. There are all sorts of minions of hell and all sorts of demonic entities which do lots, 99.99% of the possession which happens on the daily basis. Once in a blue moon, there is some big one where somebody fucks it up really bad and uh, produces a massive spiritual disaster. And then that person is possessed by the major devils, by the leading diabolic personalities from hell. In the case of Judas, he had the dubious honor of being possessed by Satan himself, like the boss of the devils, would not leave the job in anybody's responsibility. He had to put it. Once Judas was ripe for the job and this influence came, people will say, but then it was not his fault. But if somebody uses you as a glove, you are the glove. And the demon or the devil is the hand which goes in the glove And then we use that glove to pick up some burning coal and to move it from point A to point B. And then the glove is burned totally and destroyed. And the demon was not touched. He takes the glove out and the glove is destroyed. That human being is destroyed, harmed, and the demon is happily going around ready to do another act of harm. This is how we interact, how the demonic entities interact with the human beings. They use them for all the dirty jobs, they possess them, and although the human being did not have a discrimination, like uh, how could have Judas defended himself? No, I'm not saying it's impossible. But I'm saying it would have been utterly, utterly difficult. And then the human being is harmed. Judas went and committed suicide a few hours later, uh, 24 hours later. You know, and you could say, but the poor guy, what was his mm, demerit? You know, why was he guilty? He was not guilty, but his karma and his spiritual integration was of such a nature that he was used without scruples by the demonic entities. And after they wiped their ass with him, they threw him into the toilet bowl. They did not care. 
That's why it's a very, very big mistake to play with the demonic and diabolic entities because they have the worst possible rules of engagement and they will exploit you ruthlessly and if they destroy you in the process, they don't have any empathy or any worry about that. They are like the worst case psychopaths that you'd encounter in this universe. They have a totally psychopathic psychology which makes them not care a bit. They are bent on doing their worst and they don't care about the consequences. Some minor demonic entities, they can have some sort of moderate scruples and they would not push, like the entity which is stealing your sexual energy will not push you into suicide. Either they cannot, or they are not willing to push the stakes that far, because they realize it's too much negative karma resulting for them from this. But the great diabolic entities, they have passed the point of no return long, long time ago, and they simply do not care. They do not care. They would go as far as they can go. If they can determine somebody to push the nuclear button to destroy life on the whole planet, they will do it. Unfortunately, the people who, for them, for the demons, the people that could press the nuclear button, they are also supervised by Shambhala and by the angels, which keep a guard. And according to the rules of engagement, the demons, or even Satan himself, are not allowed to go that far. They are limited by the power of God from going that far. But if at any time there comes the point of going into the doomsday, then God could take his hand off the nuclear button and say, now, my dear Satan, do your worst. You know, like right now, for 24 hours, the protection is off. And then, of course, God knows what will happen. Satan will enter some idiot. That idiot will push the button. The Third World War will start. It will be nuclear. And 10,000 people will be the only survivors scattered to the most remote places of this earth. And the earth will become uninhabitable for 500 years or something. It can happen. No? And then the devil can say, I have done it. I have fulfilled my act of hate against humans and against humanity. But the devil wouldn't have been able to do that if God would have not lifted his protection. So in the case of Jesus, God lifted the protection and allowed the weakest and the most problematic person in the entourage of Jesus, he allowed him to be exposed. And the devil did not hesitate for a second. The devil, like a while, like a mad bull, just charged. He said, okay, now it's my opportunity. Like the devil could have said, I don't even understand why God is so stupid and letting me kick the ass of Jesus. But I'm not going to risk missing this opportunity. I'm going to do it. It's like the devil is almost like a robot. 
like a blind tool, which you can say God knew what the devil was going to do, and therefore God applied it, you know, and the devil was an instrument. The devil was used, right? The devil is the equivalent of the Sphinx from the Egyptian mythology, who is asking the questions, and if you don't pass the test, you don't go further into your spiritual things. That's why I want you to understand very clearly. Yes, demons and devils can enter. You pray, it doesn't happen. Especially when it is in, when you are into spiritual tests. If this thing is happening, then you might make the wrong choice. I see 50% of the time, 50% of the people make wrong choices. Wrong choices. My disciples are subjected to different spiritual tests. And I'm not daring to say 50% of the time, but 40% of the time, 30% of the time, 25% of the time, something. They do make wrong choices. And uh, my heart is very compassionate to see that. But I cannot stop the spiritual tests from happening because it's the will of God. And if such enormous things have happened to Jesus, then of course they will happen to the unworthy little us who live at this time of Kali Yuga. So Satan entered Judas. Let's leave it here. We are in the beginning of chapter 22. I will want to comment more on this. This is demonology. How do demons and diabolic entities enter one? How much responsibility and awareness does one have about this? So, I think it is enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining in this satsang. And... Um, I will see you in the other activities of Agama Yoga as we go through those. If I remember correctly, the Gospel of Luke has 24 chapters and we are already in 22. So I expect that in a matter of five, six weeks, of course, there will be some workshops and other things which will interrupt us. Uh, maybe eight weeks, ten weeks, we will finish this gigantic project which was commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. And then we are going to choose some of the other subjects which piled up meanwhile for presenting to the world. With this, we have finished. Thank you all.